Well, good morning, everyone. Would you uh, pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful for the opportunity to come and worship you here today. Lord, thankful for the gift of this, this season of Advent and Christmas, a chance to press pause in our lives and to reflect on the miracle of the Incarnation. Lord, the moment when you came and took on flesh and dwelled among us. And as we open your word, now I pray that you would open our hearts to hear you speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, Christmas is, is a wonderful but also kind of a strange time of year, isn't it? I think for, for Christians, it's a time, obviously, of celebration and joy. And of course, there's some stress, there's a lot of activity going on, but for the most part, it's an opportunity, as I just prayed, to, to reflect on the miracle of the incarnation. For the rest of the world, it's kind of a confused mess, right? I mean, most of the world seems determined to rid this special season of every last uh, vestige of religious content. And so we offer each other seasons, greetings, and happy holidays. But then you have to wonder, like, like, why are we even saying anything at all, right? I mean, there's no escaping the fact that this, uh, these greetings even exist because it is Christmas. It's the time when we celebrate the arrival of Jesus Christ. I find it fascinating personally because... Uh, even in a secular world that has largely done away with, with all belief in Jesus Christ, Christmas nevertheless remains a, a special time of year. Now, you don't get this with Thanksgiving. You certainly don't get this with New Year's Eve. But even a thoroughly secular Christmas still carries with it this lingering sense of, it's like a, almost like a reverence. Now, certainly not anything approaching a Christian reverence for God and the astonishing gift that we see lying in the manger. Definitely none of that. But there is this, this vague sense that, that this should be a time when we press pause, when, a time of hope, of, of celebration, of joy, a time for hostility to come to an end. A time for fighting to stop. A time for peace, however brief. It's like a distant memory that is so deeply embedded in our co uh, collective cultural DNA that we can't seem to escape it, however hard people may try. And so you see churches, empty during the air, suddenly filled at Christmas. People singing songs, right? And, and, and you may say, well, it's just traditions. No, but that's... The words, they speak to these deep longings in our hearts that are just impossible to erase. So people sing, and they light candles, and they decorate trees, and they visit family, and take time and effort to recognize the specialness of this time of year, but of course, without ever really recognizing why it's so special. It's crazy. We live in a world that yearns deeply for peace, but it's for the most part completely rejected the only avenue through which such peace can be accomplished. Faithful confidence and trust in God and God alone. 
And it's into this world of chaos and darkness and confusion and continued conflict that the birth of Christ continues to shine so brightly today. Now, we already talked a few weeks ago uh, about Jesus as being our hope. And then last week, Pastor Michael reminded us that Jesus is the King of Kings, our true King. This week, we're going to see that Jesus is our peace. He himself has secured our peace with God, first and foremost. Secondly, he is the means by which peace can be restored with other people. And finally, he is the only true source of peace and the sense of comfort and well-being in the midst of times of chaos and confusion. And as we see Jesus working in all these three ways, we will see that truly he is the king of peace. Now we're actually going to look at these three main points in reverse order, because although peace with God is obviously, by far, the most significant aspect of Jesus' ministry. It's our own personal sense of peace and well-being that often feels like it's the most pressing, right? It's our own personal search for peace in times of chaos that seems to drive so much of our behavior. Think about the families living in areas of war and conflict right now. How in the world do you prepare to celebrate Christmas in the middle of a time of war? Or closer to home, how can you celebrate Christmas in the middle of the chaos and struggle of your own life? When your boss is is breathing down your neck at work, when extended family members are causing you untold stress and worry, when financial burdens are weighing you down. So you all heard Drew read to us a few moments ago uh, these familiar, comforting words from Isaiah chapter 9, words of, of hope. But those words, exultant, jubilant as they are, actually came, they were spoken at a time of deep darkness for the people of God. At that time, their nation was divided, right? Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and the two did not get along. In fact, Israel had formed a military treaty with Syria and was threatening war against their brothers and sisters to the south in Judah. Meanwhile, Assyria, which takes up pretty much this entire map here, the blue and the purple, Syria is the single most dominant military force in the world at this time. Under the brutally efficient reign of Tiglath-Pileser III, Assyria was busy scooping up territory and extracting tribute from anyone who stood in their way. That's a a bit hard to see in this picture, but um, this is Tiglath-Pileser III, and this is his foot, and he's literally trampling on the heads of his enemies here. Doesn't sound very Christmassy, right? (laughs) This isn't your standard Christmas card. That's because it's not, right? It's not the, the romanticized, hallmark movie kind of Christmas. It's dark, scary, violent, surrounds God's people. Uncertainty abounds. Difficult questions about God's providence. 
But perhaps, although this scene doesn't appear in any Christmas movies today, maybe this picture of fear and darkness and uncertainty is indeed a more accurate reflection of some of the struggles that we find ourselves facing even still today. Struggles that we're crying out to God to speak into. Now for Ahaz, who was king of Judah at this time, the fear became all-consuming. So Isaiah is repeatedly pleading with him, saying, put your trust in God. You have nothing to fear from Syria, nothing to fear from, from Israel. But Ahaz convinced himself that his only hope wasn't God, but actually this man, Assyria, the king of Assyria. Ahaz wasn't thinking clearly. But that's what fear does, right? It's one thing for us to talk about trusting God when things are going well, or at least moderately well, or at least not terribly. But it's in the moments of chaos and uncertainty, when you're surrounded on all sides, when your faith is truly tested, when our actions reveal the true state of our hearts. And so Ahaz thought the only path to peace is an alliance with Assyria. His eyes were so blinded by Assyria's apparent strength and power that Isaiah's call to simply trust God seemed pathetic, inconsequential, insufficient. And in a way, I'm kind of not surprised. I mean, the names, the dates, the places have changed, but this is, this is kind of the real-world experience so much of us feel every day, where the weak get trampled, the strong come out on top, where turning the other cheek just gets you a slap on the other, where extending grace leads to mockery and ridicule, where faithfulness to Christ brings with it persecution, suffering, embarrassment, and sometimes even death. But all this darkness and heaviness and gloom is exactly what makes Isaiah's words in chapter 9 shine so brightly. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And that light, as he goes on to explain in the following verses, is God's promise of deliverance, of rescue, of restoration. And that's not going to come about through some, uh, through some obviously mighty and powerful leader like Tiglath-Pileser, but through the humble birth of a child. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. His name shall be called Mighty God. His name shall be called Everlasting Father. His name, that child's name, will be called the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Isaiah points forward to a time when this Davidic ruler, this messianic king, will usher in a time of peace and prosperity. But whereas rulers like Tiglath-Pileser, at least at the time of Isaiah, or Herod at the time of uh, Jesus' birth, whereas they increased their government through violence, through military oppression, through brutal oppression, the Messiah would expand his rule and reign by bringing peace. 
That's the bright light that people needed in their moment of darkness. The reassurance that God was in control, even in the middle of their suffering, struggle, pain, heartache, and loss. And we live in a different but but still somewhat similar environment, right? Even though the Messiah has now come, the great and glorious vision of a world without conflict it remains elusive to us, distant, out of reach until Jesus returns. And so until that day, we're called to do what Ahaz simply couldn't find himself capable of doing, trusting God in the darkness, even when oppression and violence seem ready to overwhelm us. For me, that's what makes Christmas so special. Because it's a reminder that God's promises are not empty words. Right? They're backed up by concrete actions. Isaiah 9, this would be little more than the beautiful romantic poetry. Were it not for the fact that 2,000 years ago, a real, a real baby was born to Joseph and Mary, living, breathing, crying, eating, sleeping, a child who was somehow, in a way we can't fully wrap our minds around, fully human and also fully God. The bulk of Jesus' public ministry consisted of him consistently proving that he was trustworthy over and over and over again. So he freed people from demonic oppression to prove his power over all spiritual forces. He healed people of all kinds of physical diseases to prove his power over human illnesses, over creation. He even displayed his total authority over all of the created world, right? Walking on water, uh, multiplying bread and fish, turning uh, 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 water into wine, even calming the storm. All of these miracles designed to prove in a thousand different ways he was the Messiah, the promised one, fully God. Concrete, tangible evidence for anyone with eyes to see that he could be trusted, that he could be relied upon, that he could bring us peace in ways soothing music or a nice hot bath or a relaxing cup of tea could never, ever do. And so we access that peace in our lives by choosing to trust Jesus in moments of fear and stress instead of anxiously grasping at the first solution that comes our way. When we choose to stop and pray and wait for God to speak instead of rushing ahead blindly, when we take time to seek counsel and direction and wisdom from brothers and sisters in Christ whom we know will pray with us and for us instead of acting impulsively or rashly like Ahaz. Peace can be elusive, but our Prince of Peace is ever-present, ever-ready to guide, to lead, to bless, and to comfort us. His hands remain firmly on the wheel, and nothing happens outside of his control. And in that lies our hope for some semblance of a feeling of peace in our lives. So, 
there is this subjective, internal sense of peace that, that the Messiah brings to his broken people living in a broken world. But his peace expands beyond that also to include our relationships with others as well. And as we enter this final week before Christmas and face all kinds of potential family drama, this should be a source of great encouragement for all of us. Now look back at the text uh, in, in uh, Isaiah 9 with me. Verse 1. This is perhaps one of the most uh, uh, striking and honestly a little bit confusing comments that Isaiah makes. He says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now we already talked about the gloom that people were living under, right? Under threat of imminent destruction. And indeed, the, the, the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali were among the first to be destroyed and overrun by the Assyrian forces. But the surprise here is a reference to Galilee of the nations, or in some translations you may have in your Bible, it may say a Galilee of the Gentiles. In other words, non-Jewish people. This brilliant light that Isaiah promises will break over the land will apparently not be limited to God's people only. This light will somehow expand to include the Gentiles as well. As I said, at the very least, it would have been surprising for Isaiah's audience. Most likely, downright confusing. I mean, God's presence was amongst God's people, right? God's promises were for God's people. So imagine kids on, on Christmas Day, your parents, they go next door and they round up the neighbor kids and, and they bring them over to your house and they have them open the presents and inside are the, are the gifts that, that you were expecting for yourself and now they're getting them as well. Right? Bizarre. It's like, well, what's going on? The Messiah and all the great promises accompanying his arrival were intended for God's people, or so they thought. And so promises like this, pointing ahead to some future inclusion of the Gentiles among God's people, would have been confusing, disorienting, perhaps easily written off or ignored as sort of poetic license or exaggeration. And yet clearly God was working out a plan that nobody, perhaps not even Isaiah himself, fully understood. And so skip ahead 700 years, and where does the angel Gabriel go? To, to a, a young virgin living in a small town in Galilee. Now that detail is not accidental or incidental, it's vitally important Mary didn't live in Jerusalem. She was Jewish, yes. But she lived in the region where Isaiah had prophesied the light would first shine brightly. And so skip ahead again to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in Matthew chapter 4. And we read that Jesus very specifically goes to the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali 
to live, to set up his base of operations, right? Fulfilling this very specific prophecy in Isaiah 9. And it's in this location that Jesus begins to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is coming to hand right in the very region that was first destroyed and overrun by the Assyrians, where Isaiah prophesied God's light would first shine brightest. Now, is all animosity between Jew and Gentile erased in this moment? Of course not. Right? Does everyone immediately grasp the theological significance associated with all these geographical locations? It's doubtful. But the pieces are slowly starting to come together. I imagine you know, building some like enormous extravagant Lego set where uh, uh, you're working, you have to work on all these little pieces first. And, and as you're working on this one little section, you can't see yet how it's all going to come together to make something amazing. And so skip forward again now to Ephesians chapter 2, and, and the Apostle Paul is the one to finally begin to connect all these little dots for the people. And whereas previously the Gentiles had been alienated, separated from God and all the blessings of the covenant, Paul now says, Now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Who has made both one, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The startling beauty of the gospel is that it is good news of great joy for all the people, as the angel tells the shepherds. Through his own sacrificial death and resurrection, Jesus makes it possible for both Jews and Gentiles alike to be brought together as one people, united by the blood of Christ. So there's now this spiritual unity which transcends any ethnic divisions that might have existed. Now again, the lived reality of this great promise, it didn't just sort of happen instantly. Right? I mean, uh, the, the early church struggled intensely with the ramifications of this enormous shift in what God was doing, overcoming deeply held prejudices and, 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 and traditions. It takes time and effort. The early churches stumbled their way through this. Even Peter and Paul, right, challenging each other publicly on, on, on how Jews and Gentiles should relate to one another. But the point is that in and through Christ, the Prince of Peace, that dividing wall had been torn down and the doors thrown open for unity and oneness among the people of God. Now perhaps you've heard before the word peace, in Hebrew at least, the word peace carries with it this idea of wholeness, of completion. And we see God's hand here moving to bring about a kind of relational wholeness as he creates a new people for himself, not by erasing differences, but by bringing us together despite our differences, by making 
a new family out of every tribe and nation. And that's where the hope for the awkwardness and the, and the stress of our own family dramas and relational stresses lies. So does the birth of the Prince of Peace automatically solve all our arguments and fighting? Of course not. Even among professing God-fearing Christians. However, the birth of the Prince of Peace guarantees the possibility of peace, even in the most strained and challenging of family situations. Because the power is not in us, it's in the one Spirit who unifies all believers. He is the supernatural glue that ties us all together. And in linking us to Christ, he creates avenues then for us to be reconciled and restored in relationships with each other then as well. Which means that this Christmas, peace is a very real possibility in our families. We can pray for the Spirit to bring about repentance and forgiveness and restoration and for the Spirit to bring about healing and hope And we can look for ways to find common ground as brothers and sisters bound together by the blood of Christ. Now, that leaves us with one final component to look at. Because as nice as it is to experience these subjective feelings of peace in times of chaos and uncertainty... And as great as it may be to to experience peace or at least the possibility of peace in our broken relationships with with other people, neither of those blessings really amounts to much as long as we remain estranged from our Heavenly Father. The kind of peace that we've talked about so far, it may feel like it's the most pressing thing in our lives, but it's really just the fruit of something far more significant. And that's the work that Jesus did on our behalf to secure our peace with God. That, that's the good news proclaimed by the angels to the astonished shepherds watching their sheep outside of Bethlehem. Right? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Not feelings of comfort and well-being, although that's part of it, of course. Not a solution for family drama, although that door is being opened. But they're talking about redemption, a divine rescue from the power and the penalty of sin. What we were utterly powerless to do under our own strength, Christ accomplished on our behalf. That's what the angels are singing about. The, The time has finally come. The Word has has taken on flesh and come and dwelled among us. How could anyone keep silent at such a moment? You know, we, uh, we so often sing, or at least try to sing, O Holy Night at this time of year. right? Even non-Christians, again, this is just so fascinating to me. Even non-Christians love this song. We could examine all the lyrics, but I love this one line. Right at the beginning, long lay the world in sin and error, pining. 
for thousands of years, the people of God had been born, lived, and died waiting for the great promises of God to be fulfilled, waiting for the curse to be undone, waiting for God to take all the broken pieces of creation and set them back in place once again. And the song captures that spiritual reality in stark terms. The, the world is, w- w- was pining, groaning, yearning deeply for help, completely stuck in sin with no hope of escape. You know, the image that comes to mind for me is, you know, it seems like every year or so there's an oil tanker that runs aground somewhere around the world, right? And the resulting oil spills quickly spread across the water, infecting everything it touches. You've probably seen then the resulting images of, of seagulls or pelicans completely covered in oil, right? Their beautiful wings are all matted with this thick black gunk. They can hardly like lift them up off their sides. Just waddling around on these oil-stained beaches, cawing, trying hopelessly to shake off the oil. But they can't. The oil spreads throughout their habitat. There's no escaping its reach. Without the intervention of, of animal rescue helpers, these birds will die. And so what do these people do? They, they go out there, they, they have to carefully capture the birds, bring them into a facility, and then slowly and painstakingly wash off all that oil by hand. And, it, and in some small way, this, this image for me captures a, a glimpse of our own predicament. Because sin has infected every last corner of this world. No part of it remains untouched. And without some kind of dramatic intervention from outside, all hope is lost. The Bible says we're slaves to sin, trapped in darkness, doomed to death. Not just physical death, but eternal separation from our loving Heavenly Father. But it's worse than that. In my illustration, the the birds are essentially just innocent victims. They did nothing wrong. But of course, it's completely different for us. The Bible is clear that when it comes to sin, there are no innocent victims who just accidentally stumbled into sin. We did this. We made this mess. We brought it on ourselves. We're the rebels. We're the ones who, who, who shed off God's gracious, loving, peaceful rule and sought to establish a kingdom for ourselves. Apart from Christ, we have waded so deep into the thick oil of sin that we don't even see the problem anymore. And so the offer of peace with God can end up sounding like, well, almost like a joke to people who can't even see that they're at war. Like, peace with God? I didn't, who, I didn't even know we were at war. But look at Colossians chapter 1. Paul describes those who don't know Jesus. How? He says they're alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. 
In other words, violently opposed to the ways of God. And yet, at the same time, it was to those very hostile, evil, sin-darkened rebels that God sent his son, right? As a baby, lying in a manger, the prince of peace. As Paul tells the Colossians, and it's through him that he seeks to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. How? By making peace through the blood of his cross. And so we learn that our sins are washed away, not, not with water and soap, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ himself. We were reconciled with God through Christ's real physical death on the cross. The ultimate peace offering, lifting us up out of the miry clay, setting our feet on a rock, presenting us to himself, holy, unstained, pure, renewed, restored, no longer enemies, but beloved sons and daughters of God. And it's this peace that we now have with God, which then becomes the fuel for every other kind of peace that we're looking for in this world. So when the, the chaos of life threatens to capsize us, Jesus offers us his peace. How is that possible? Because we're no longer under the judgment of God for our rebellion. He now delights to bless his children, and he promises to never leave us nor forsake us. Right, This true lasting peace and comfort in knowing that our Heavenly Father is with us at all times, in all places, with no exceptions. And His presence brings comfort, and His Spirit brings strength and courage and peace. As wars and conflicts continue to rage around us from everything, from sort of petty disputes with neighbors to uh, armed, violent uh, conflict, Peace is possible on earth because peace has been established now with God in heaven. We're not alone. The kingdom of God is expanding around the world, changing hearts, bringing forgiveness and reconciliation and healing where we least expect it. Not through our brilliant diplomatic efforts, Right? But through the growing influence and the unstoppable power of God's kingdom, growing, spreading, bearing fruit, restoring life to everything that it touches. So where does that leave us then this Christmas? Advent, as we've talked about, is a time when we, we can look back and we can celebrate with joy the arrival of our Prince of Peace, the one who restores all things to himself. Christmas is a chance to remember the moment when the prophecies of Isaiah 9 were fulfilled. But at the same time, this also remains a time of pining, yearning, because the glorious visions of this sort of Edenic-like peace that we read in the prophets has yet to be fulfilled. Right? Wars continue. Our lives are filled with all kinds of struggle and difficulty. So Isaiah talks about the government being on his shoulders, but it doesn't always feel like that. As we read in, in the book of Hebrews, at present, we don't see everything subject to him. 
And so this Christmas, we worship the King who has come, and we give thanks also for the hope that He has brought, but we're also reminded that the best is yet to come, that true permanent peace and rest awaits us still in the future. And so this Advent, we continue to wait, and we yearn, and we pine for His return to make everything right again. And in closing, until that day, may the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make His face shine upon us and be gracious to us. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us and bring, his, bring us peace through his son Jesus. Amen.